there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I really believe with all my heart that our status, our marital status, is a gift of God and as such ought to be accepted and used as are all his other gifts for the sake of other people. I will be talking a little bit more about what I see to be the truth about gifts tomorrow when I speak on the subject of suffering. But I do think that marriage is a gift which I think most of us would regard as the greatest gift and the one we would choose if we had a choice. I don't know very many single women who would choose to be single if all other things were equal. I know some very contented single women who have accepted this as a gift from God, even though God didn't give them a choice of their gifts. And the rest of us are the richer because these women have given themselves to God and laid down their lives for the rest of us in ways which married women simply cannot do. Paul knew what he was talking about when he said the married woman thinks about how she can please her husband and the single woman can think about how, how to please the Lord. I'm not at all sure that Paul was a single man. I think it's very clear that he was single when he wrote his epistles but there's no proof that Paul was not a widower, or perhaps even divorced, although I presume that would be rather unlikely. But he knew quite a lot about women, it seems to me, maybe more than would be seemly for a bachelor. And <laughs> he himself recognized the gift of single life as a special gift, one which not very many people had, far fewer people in his day than in ours, I suppose, because the single woman just hardly existed. Marriages were usually arranged. And in our day, for various reasons, there seemed to be far more single women than single men. I read that the percentage of widows over 60 is 16 to 1 widower. Did you say not where you live? It is where you live. Mm -hmm. Well, we had 79 single women on the mission field and one, two single men. And it goes without saying that those two single men both fell in love with the same woman and she was a widow and it was not I. <laughs> <laughs> but that's quite a commentary, isn't it, on Christian service, the Christian church. 79 single women to two single men. And one of them, incidentally, is married now. I think the other one's still hopeful. And probably 76 of those single women are also still hopeful that they might nail him. But I really don't have any other words of comfort to the single women and the widower, widows and the divorcees, except that we accept... God's choice for us, we accept 
our position in life as being a sphere of service for him and an, an arena in which we are given the opportunity to lay down our lives in ways which married women are not. And by thanksgiving to God, that gift is offered back and consecrated. A thing is made holy by being offered to God, just like the vessels in the Old Testament. And whether or not our particular gift is one which we would have chosen is really neither here nor there. But God has given it to us for his own purposes and to be used for his glory. So now let me talk about marriage. And I know that, as in all other talks that I give, not everybody will have ears to hear what I have to say on this subject. But I trust there will be some. First of all, who is it that you marry? A, you marry a sinner. And I think that's so obvious and so self-evident that it ought, need, it, need, it ought not to have to be repeated. And yet it is something that I recognized as a fact that I had to take into account every day. Your husband, don't forget, married a sinner too. And you are altogether become unprofitable. And if we can just settle it once and for all in our minds that this man is, after all, something less than perfect, and a sinner who needs the grace of God and needs forgiveness and needs understanding, just the same as I do, then I will avoid a great many problems. It's strange that we have to remind ourselves of this, but undoubtedly, our expectations are far higher for our husbands than they are for any other human being. And we are therefore that much more unreasonable in the way we treat them. And how often it has been said that we treat those most intimate to us like you know, dirt and we treat strangers politely. What a difference it would make if we would start treating those in our own household like strangers politely and with consideration. The second thing is that you marry a man. This might seem too obvious to be mentioned too, but it's another fact which we have to remind ourselves of. We marry a man, not a woman. And there are ways in which never the twain shall meet. You say, my husband doesn't understand me, and I answer, of course not. He never will, and he was never supposed to. And the wife doesn't understand her husband either. And there are areas which will remain forever mysterious to the opposite sex. And I think this is fine. Not that there weren't times when I wished that it were not so. When I had a husband, I would like to have been able to fathom him, but I didn't. And you all know that song in My Fair Lady, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? <laughs> Men are so gentle, so fair, so I don't know what all he lists, but all the qualities that he liked in men that women just simply didn't have. And it's very tempting for us to say, why can't a man be more like a woman? And yet what a world it would be if they were. I like the French expression, vive la différence. 
let's be grateful for the differences and accentuate them rather than try to erase them. And to quote my friend Gert Bahanna, again, whom I've never met, she said, men are men, they are not women. Women are women, they are not men. I wish I could get that gravelly voice that she has. <laughs> but I loved the straightforward, matter-of-fact way in which she said that, and it's a fact that has to be said over and over again. I've given a similar talk to college women who were looking forward to being married and to seminary women who were already married, and several of them have expressed to me that this was a revelation, that they really had not accepted their husbands as men. They had expected of them all sorts of things which could only be expected of a woman. The third thing is that you marry a husband. Now, this is different from marrying a sinner and marrying a man. You marry a husband. And by this I mean that your relationship with your husband is unique. It's not the same as your relationship with anybody else. <coughs> Unfortunately, most women marry before they're 21. I think the statistics, they've probably gone down even further, but I've at the time I read them, there were 10% 10, 10 of the women who marry, marry after the age of 21. So, by far the largest majority of women have never had a chance to be out in the world on their own. Most likely they have grown up at home and they've been sent away to college and given everything that was necessary to get them through college and they met the man during their college years and they married either before or immediately after graduation. And they have never had a chance to live in the real world as an adult before they live, before they're plunged into the relationship of marriage. And so a great many of the blows that come to them are blows which life would deal them, but they blame their husbands for having dealt these blows. It's unfortunate, I say, that women can't have the experience of being single and being single alone before they get married. I was 26 when I got married the first time, and I felt that it was an enormous advantage to have had five years as a single woman out of college, more or less having to become an adult and learn a few lessons before I started blaming all my difficulties on my poor, long-suffering husband. But immature women expect their husbands to be girlfriends or fathers or brothers or sisters, or mothers, or to take the place of all these other relationships, which we all know no husband can possibly do. So it's a good thing to remember that this is a unique relationship. It was never meant to be like the others. It was never meant to take the place of the others. Young women often think that they will not need their other friends and relations after they get married, and it's kind of a rude awakening for them to discover that they are at least as much in need of women friends and of their fathers and their brothers as they were before. You marry not only a sinner and a man and a husband, but you marry a person with a name. A person with a name. I always take special note of what people call each other. My husband used to think that I had a real fixation about this. But it says a great deal to me if a man calls his wife mommy. 
and I mean when the children are not present. Now, of course, I have no objection to the woman calling her husband daddy and the wife, the husband calling his wife mommy in the presence of the children when speaking to the children. But I don't want any man calling me mommy ever for any reason at all. And I often hear married couples who simply fail to address each other at all. They don't even give each other a name, whether it's cream puff or Tootsie or Babe or Sugar Pie or anything. I don't care what the name is. They don't use any name. And to me, this is profoundly significant. There's something wrong with that kind of a relationship where the person is not even a person. He's a piece of the furniture. I've been in homes where I could hear the husband shouting out to the wife with just beginning the sentence with no form of address whatsoever, no pause to discover whether the lady, lady can hear him or not. And I've heard women call their husbands you without even referring to them by name. I've talked to women who have repeatedly said he without ever saying my husband even or giving him a name. So to me, it's very significant what you call your husband. I'm all for endearing terms. Don't get me wrong. I certainly loved to be called darling or sweetheart. The fifth thing is that you marry not only a man, a sinner, a man, a husband, and a person. You marry this sinner, this man, this husband, and this person, and nobody else. And this is the man you got. This is the man you chose. After all, you did not have to marry him. And I hear echoes of Gert Bahanna again. She says, after all, who married him? You did. <laughs> and it's well to remember that. You did have a free choice. At least you could choose not to marry the man. I'm not saying you had an array of choices from which to choose. But you've married this man with his peculiarities and his limitations and his personality and his background and his friends and his in-law, his relatives who are your in-laws. And don't forget that you do marry in-laws. But what you get is what you should accept. My husband used to say that if you were very generous, you might grant the possibility that your husband lived up to 80% of your expectations. Most of us, I think, could grant that. Now, if you choose, you could pick away for the rest of your married life at the 20% that is not what you expected. Or you can choose to appreciate that 80%. And I recommend the latter. Just relax and enjoy the 80% of that man that you married, the 80% that you can honestly enjoy, and forget the rest. Well, you say you can't forget it. You have to live with it day in and day out. I have a very dear friend who is one of four or five old women who have taught me many things, and I consider myself very lucky to have these old women as my friends and counselors. And one of them is a single woman. She is now 80. She's never been married, and she's very wise and very humorous and very outgoing and self-giving and just everything that I think a woman ought to be. And 
among the many things that she has said to me, which I've been quoting ever since, she said to me, you know, we're none of us prize packages. Look for the essentials and skip the rest. And I suppose every woman, when she marries, thinks that she's getting a prize package. But I got the only two <laughs> that were. And, of course, I can say that because they're both dead and gone, and I've forgotten if there ever was a percentage that I didn't like about them. But she, she said, just look for the essentials and skip the rest. And she was speaking of all personal relationships, not just marriage. But I think it's a very good thing to remember. Just about a year after my second husband and I were married, we went to speak as a team in a church in Michigan. This was one of two occasions, I think, when he and I were asked to speak on the same platform. And it was just the most exciting, thrilling experience to me to be able to work with him in this way. And the minister who had invited us had himself been a widower and had also married at a approximately the same time that we did. So we had a very interesting time together, the four of us. I had known this man and his wife in college, and he married a single woman. And one of the first things that I said to him was, Paul, I'd like to know what a year of second marriage has taught you. And without any hesitation, he said, it's taught me to accept Dorothy for what Dorothy is. He said, there were a lot of things that Winifred could give me that Dorothy can't give me, and there, were a lot of, there are a lot of things that Dorothy can give me that Winifred could never have given me. And he said, I've learned to take Dorothy for everything that she's got and everything that she is and accept her. And Dorothy was sitting there just beaming from ear to ear, and it was obviously a very happy marriage. And I thought that was a great lesson. If I had needed to be told that lesson myself, I hope I might have learned it. When my husband proposed to me, my second husband, I knew that I was an extremely lucky woman. And the few of you in this room who knew him, I think, will agree. I knew also that I was just one of a great number of women who would have been very happy to have him. It so happened that his first wife had been ill for 11 years. And... By this time, there was probably quite a lineup of hopeful women. It's, let's face it, it's, it's perfectly true. I mean, the women are at the funeral, aren't they, wondering who's going to attract his attention first. Well, I didn't happen to be at the funeral, and I did not live anywhere near him. I lived more than a 1,000 miles away, so I couldn't exactly be carrying casseroles to the door like all the rest of them. <laughs> I couldn't call him up very often. It was unbelievable to me, the pitches that were made in his direction and the numbers of them and the unceasing efforts that were made. And so when he decided that it was I that he wanted, I said to him, now, I know that there are an awful lot of things that an awful lot of other women could have given you that I could never give you. I knew of at least one woman who had a great deal of money and I felt quite sure that she had been waiting for him. I said, I can't give you any of that. There are a lot of other things that a lot of other women could offer, but I said, there's one thing that there's not a woman in this world that can outdo me on, and that is appreciation. 
I had been a widow at that time for 13 years. And believe me, if you never appreciate your husband before, 13 years of widowhood will certainly do wonders for that quality. And I don't think it's a quality that's very common in young people. We have to get on in years before we begin to appreciate what other people are and what it took to make this person what it is, what he is, and what he overcame in becoming what he is, and a million other things. I'm sure that we all learn this as we go grow older. It's certainly one of the qualities that I have begun to learn in my friends. I'm not speaking only of husbands, but the older we get, the more we learn to appreciate our friends and what they are to us and what they are in themselves and what has made them what they are. And through 13 years of widowhood, believe me, I had looked over a lot of men, married and single. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and quite honestly, I don't think I had ever seen anybody that I really would have wanted, even if I could have had them. And it wasn't as though I had any idea whatsoever that I could have any man that I wanted. To me, it was absolutely a miracle that I got married the first time. I couldn't imagine ever getting married the second time. And I'm dead serious. I really mean this. I was not a person who was ever dated in high school or college. I didn't have chances even. And the fact that Jim Elliott wanted to marry me was a gift from God, straight from heaven, a miracle not to be repeated. And when Jim died, one of my first reactions was, now, Lord, you could have done better than that. You know that I can never get married again. The rest of these four, the other four widows probably can. And, of course, as you widows know, it isn't as though when your husband dies, the first thing you think of is, well, I can get another one. It's not as though you ever want to even think about getting married again. But it just seemed to me like such an inexplicable thing to have happened after only 27 months of marriage. So when the second one came along, I, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, well, this is the miracle which couldn't have happened to me. And so I told him that appreciation was one quality that I could guarantee. And I appreciated him, and he appreciated me, and we had a most idyllic four years together. You know that song, the other song in My Fair Lady, she'll redecorate your home from the cellar to the dome and then go on to the enthralling fun of overhauling you. And I think this is instinctive in most women. They want to redecorate their homes. They want to make nests. They want to make over everybody that comes within an inch of them. And their husbands are the object of endless refurbishing and refurnishing and redecorating and rearranging. Well, just forget all that and relax and accept that man who shares your life and to whom you mean everything. It's a marvelous thing to realize that there's one person in the world to whom you really matter. Catherine Mansfield, who was separated from her husband for many years because of illness, wrote, it is a wonderfully sustaining thing to have somebody who goes to bed where you do. And that is something that I've often thought of and repeated. Just the 
simple comfort of knowing that that person is there and that that person matters more than anybody else to you and that you matter to him. The second thing I would like to talk about is what is marriage. But before I go on to that, I did want to say that um, all of those things in the first category were came out of a panel that I was asked to participate in for college women who were engaged. And it was very interesting to me to see the reaction of men who heard about this panel. My husband was the first one. And he said, a panel on marriage? And I said, yes. And he said, what is it to talk about? And again and again, when we talked about the panel that we had had, the, re the reaction of the men was identical. A panel on marriage? What in the world are you going to talk about? And their attitude was that there really isn't anything to discuss. And women have no trouble discussing marriage endlessly. And when we prepared this panel, the five women who were going to be on it, there were two of us middle-aged women and three young women, one of them a seminary wife, we got together at my house to discuss who was going to talk about what. And one of the questions that I raised was the subject of crying. And I said, I really thought that something ought to be said about this because the young engaged women are not prepared to find that there's any reason at all for crying and after they get married. And I have heard women say over and over again that they did more crying in their first year of marriage than all the rest of their lives put together. And I have four married brothers, three of whom have come to me at some time or other and said, what on earth are you supposed to do when your wife cries? And there's no explanation for this. This is one of the things where never the twain shall meet. The man cannot possibly fathom why it is that you're crying. The chances are you don't really have a very clear idea yourself as to what it is you're crying about. And any attempt to explain it will only end in a dead end or in an argument. So forget the explanations. But I said, I do think they should be forewarned. And it just happened that my husband came through the room just at the moment we were discussing this, and he paused for a moment just to see what in the world it was that there was to talk about the subject of marriage. And when I said this, one of the women in the panel said, well, I don't really think I agree with you. I, I don't do all that much crying. I'm sure I don't cry more than once a week. <laughs> At that, my husband beat a very hasty retreat. <laughs> Those of you who heard Billy Graham last week heard his definition of marriage given by a child. I, wasn't, I didn't get whether it was one of his own children or somebody else, but a child said that marriage is when you find somebody you want to keep. And I like that. Marriage is an institution for the preservation of love. We hear far too much about love being the thing which preserves a marriage. Love is what makes a marriage work. But there's a great deal to be said the other way around. Marriage is what preserves love. Marriage is what makes love work. Because so long as love is just a feeling, it's not going to be very dependable any more than the feelings that we like to take as faith. It's treacherous ground 
to be on, treacherous ground on which to build a marriage. And I know of couples who have changed the wedding service to say, as long as we both shall love, instead of as long as we both shall live. Now that is tragic, to base a marriage on that. Love is a command. It's not a feeling. The second thing, marriage is a covenant. It's a promise entered into not just between two people. There are four parties involved in a marriage covenant. The two people, God, and society. And this is why we get married in a church or in some public place with witnesses. Because we enter into this contract not just between ourselves, that wouldn't make it a very strong one, but before God and before the public. And we marry, we make the promises that we make before these witnesses in order that we ourselves can remember that they weren't made just to each other and that we cannot therefore dissolve them just between ourselves. They are far more serious. They signal something far bigger than ourselves, something vastly prior to this particular relationship at this particular time taking place on this particular Saturday afternoon. Marriage is a divinely ordered institution, and it is meant to be a covenant. And when you say, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. That's a pretty staggering kind of a covenant to enter into, isn't it? We had a friend of mine who was a Jew at our wedding, my second marriage, and to my amazement, he had never heard the marriage vows that we repeated, and he just kept shaking his head and saying he just, he couldn't get over it. He couldn't imagine anybody saying that kind of thing to another. And my husband used to joke about these vows. He said, well, I certainly never expected you to get sick. Well, fortunately, I didn't. But when you say, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, it's an act of faith because you have no way of knowing what tomorrow may bring forth. I can remember the delicious feeling of almost complacency when my first husband and I walked out of the Justice of the Peace where we were married in Quito, Ecuador. It wasn't a shotgun wedding. We just didn't have a formal church wedding because we really didn't have anybody there to share it with. There wasn't anybody of my family or friends, so we did it without fuss. But I can remember going over the vows in my mind. There were no vows, of course, to be said to the Justice of the Peace. And as we came out, I thought of those marvelous words, as long as we both shall live, until death us do part. And I had this delicious feeling of complacency because this man was now mine and nobody was ever going to take him away from me except death. And of course, that was certainly a very long way off. Well, 27 months is not really a very long time, especially when it's a man that you've waited six years for. How many times I thought of these vows during my second husband's long and very devastating illness. He died of cancer in September of 1973. And 
as I watched this man literally disintegrate before me, body, soul, and spirit, I thought probably every day of those words, in sickness and in health. And I could have said, well, this is not the man I married. And I've heard this argument for people who are contemplating divorce. I married this kind of man, and he's turned into something else. And certainly this was true. This was not the man I married. It was some 80 pounds less. And Bill is no longer the man that Betty Ann married either, physically. <laughs> <laughs> and in many other ways, he turned into somebody almost unrecognizable. And I had to think of the seriousness of those vows, and I thought, well, God knew exactly what I was getting. I thought I knew. I thought I could count on maybe five or ten years this time. Although he was a great deal older than I was, I knew perfectly well from a human standpoint I would again be widowed, and this was part of the bargain. He wrote me a very beautiful letter before he proposed to me, laying the cards on the table, as it were, and saying, now, this is what you're going to get. And he listed all the things that he could, all the horrible things he could think of that go along with old age. I called it his geriatric letter. <laughs> and at the bottom, he said, and I thought this was so typical of him and so beautiful, he said, so here I am, all of me, for you forever, but you will be tempted to say, and what kind of an offer is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I thank God for having given me that man for even that short time. But we don't have to be afraid when we go into a marriage that something unforeseen is going to happen. We know that a lot of unforeseen things are going to happen. But it is an act of faith. It's a question of, being, of believing that God has brought you two together, of taking this step in faith and trusting God for whatever eventualities life may bring forth. Marriage is a dynamic and not a static relationship. It's going to get either worse or better. There's no way in the world for it to stay exactly the way it was on the day that you married him. And when I talk to young women about this, those who are contemplating marriage and those who have perhaps just been married a short time, I ask them to remember what it was that attracted them to this man. Now, it might have been because they were on the same bowling team. It might have been because the man was the big man on campus, the football hero, the president of the student body, or, like my husband, a champion wrestler and a Greek scholar, but you know, those things really don't go very far in life. After Jim and I got to the jungle, it really didn't matter a whole lot to those Indians whether he had gotten highest honors in Greek or whether he could pin four states champions or not. And when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of living with this man, the fact that he was a great athlete is really not going to cut a whole lot of ice in your married life. So try to remember what it was that made you love this man, and I trust that you can think of a few things besides those very superficial and external qualities. And because you are human beings and you're both growing and not 
static and staying in the same in the same place. And that marriage has got to change and develop and metamorphose into something better or something worse. Marriage in the fourth place is a mirror. For the first time, probably in your life, you are living in an intimate day-by-day and night-by-night relationship with another adult who, in a sense, is your peer. He's not your father or your mother or your teachers, but somebody with whom you have to cope with the business of daily living. And it's very likely your first chance to really see yourself as you are. And the probability is very high that the very things that you see in him that you dislike are reflections of yourself, things for which you yourself are equally culpable. I have occasionally had difficulty in this whole business of of confession of sin. That sounds like a terrible thing to say, but it's true. I have actually found myself on my knees in church repeating the confession and racking my brains to think of something that I should be confessing. Now, when I think of what God's list must be with regard to me, it's certainly a sin right there that I can't think of anything. But I never had this problem when I was married. (laughs) I could think of an enormously long list of things which I ought to have done and had left undone, and things which I ought not to have done and had, in fact, done. There is a give and take and a dynamic relationship which is set up here between two human beings, which is an enormous advantage, really. It gives you the the potential, the possibility for growth and change that you simply do not have when you live by yourself, when you don't have the intimate relationship and the kind of responsibility that a marriage entails. So, marriage is a mirror, and it's an opportunity, unparalleled opportunity, to get to know yourself. If you love that man then you're going to learn an awful lot about yourself, probably more than you can stand. Most of us can't bear very much reality at any given time. And when we talk and talk and talk about relationships and reality and honesty and bearing our souls and sharing our real feelings and how do you really feel about this, I cringe. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear how you really feel about me, and I don't want you to know how I really feel about much of anything because I can't stand that kind of scrutiny and I can't stand that much reality. It's really just a tiny facet of truth that any one of us can grasp at any given time. Even the Apostle Paul said, we see through a glass darkly. Now we know in part, but then shall we know even as also we are known. And marriage is, in many different ways, a foretaste of heaven. One of them is that we are known in a way that we cannot possibly be known by anybody else. I love that biblical word, to know, and Abraham knew his wife. It's used in the Old Testament specifically to mean intercourse. 
but it's a word which has tremendous overtones. And it is in that mysterious entering into the inner sanctum, to that inner knowledge, that the real self is revealed. And we can't always stand up to that kind of a revelation. And this is the source of very many of our difficulties in a marriage. So marriage is an institution for the preservation of love. It's a covenant, and therefore not to be dissolved. It's dynamic, and it's a mirror. What makes it work? Several things, I think, make marriage work. And first of all, I have the understanding of the scriptural principles of order. These are the principles that I talked about today when I spoke of liberation. And it is of the utmost importance that both husbands and wives should understand that God created them to be a unity. The scripture very clearly says woman was made for man, not man for the woman. Now you can talk all you want about hermeneutics and exegesis and interpretations and, oh, well, you might interpret this this way and you can interpret that that way, but I challenge anybody to interpret that verse. It's just too terribly plain. Woman was made for man, not man for the woman. I just can't get around that verse and I don't really want to. To me, it was just thrilling. It was delightful to realize that I was made for this man and that I had the privilege of sharing his life and of being to him a help meet for his needs. There's no such word as help mate. Ladies, if you don't mind my throwing in a grammar lesson, helpmate is a corruption of the scriptural word help meet. The word meet simply means suitable, help suitable to the needs of this man. Ruth Graham said that when she is asked for advice to young women contemplating marriage, she says, marry a man to whom you are prepared to adjust. I think that's a woman's job. You do the adjusting. And I know right away there are some of you saying, well, don't you think that a husband has to do any adjusting to a wife? Of course he does. But you don't come at it that way. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It was never supposed to be. My husband used to say that he felt 100% responsible to see that our marriage worked. And I felt also 100% responsible. If we're going to get down to a power struggle, this is not a marriage. As soon as you start drawing up a contract, well, if you do this, then I do this. You wash the dishes Friday night, I wash the dishes Saturday night. This is not a marriage. A woman was meant to be a help suited to her husband. I just recently read a book in which one woman actually published her marriage contract with her husband. I, it was unbelievable to me, but everything was down in black and white. He was to cook the dinners on Friday, Saturday, and Sundays. She would cook the dinners Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesdays. And on Thursdays, whoever had done the most extra work would not have to cook the dinner. 
and he would get the children up on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays and give them their breakfast and their lunch money and their school books and their rubbers and see that they got on the bus while she slept in. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays, she got up and gave them their breakfast and their lunch money and their rubbers and their school books and got them on the bus. Everything was down in black and white, and there were a number of places where any possibility of any variation was taken care of in the contract, the small print and everything else. I can't imagine how a marriage like that would work. It would be interesting to know whether it did or not, but at least the woman was proud enough of having achieved this that she published it in a book. It's not a 50-50 proposition, and it was never supposed to be. Very good advice is never love anybody unless you're prepared to suffer and to sacrifice. C.S. Lewis says don't even love an animal unless you're prepared for both those things. Certainly don't get married. Marriage inevitably will involve suffering of some sort, hurt if not physical suffering, you're going to have your feelings hurt. My daughter became engaged on Christmas, and it's just it was just a thrill to me to see the way she and her fiancé both wanted to sit at my feet and ask me all kinds of questions. And one of the questions they asked was, in what way do you think we should prepare ourselves for suffering? Or my daughter said, what are some of the ways in which I should expect to suffer? in marriage. Well, I, I couldn't give her any examples except the fact that she would undoubtedly be hurt by her husband. I said, there's just no way in the world to live intimately with a person that you love without hurting him, and there are times when he's going to hurt you. And of course, neither of them could imagine such a thing. Their engagement is a beautiful thing to see. I talked to a woman not very long ago. She called me on the phone and talked about this and that and the other thing, and finally, just before she was ready to hang up, she said, well, I'm wearing a diamond now. And I said, you're engaged? And she said, yes. I said, marvelous. Is it the man I met when I was out there? And she said, yes. And I was very delighted to hear this, and as far as I could tell, there wasn't an ounce of excitement in her voice. And she said, well, she said, you know, we really think we're doing the right thing. We've prayed about it. We've thought about it for a long time. It's been going on for three years, and it's kind of off again, on again, and well, there's really no reason for us not to get married. And furthermore, we've gotten to the point now where we can go for 20 minutes without having an argument. I thought, well, that's a great, a great marriage coming up. The principle that we talked about this morning, my life for yours, is the principle on which a good marriage is based. I lay down my life for this man, and in that giving of myself, I'm fulfilled and complimented in a way that I could never be by holding back and insisting on a contract. Simple courtesy, petty sacrifices, compliments, telling your husband that he's done a great job, telling him that he's handsome, telling him that he looks nice, thanking him every day for something. Those of you who have heard 
Gert Bahana speak on this subject or have heard her record, Women Be Women, know how she talks about the women who belittle their husbands and how often she has heard husbands and children compliment the mother and the wife on a great meal, but she said she had never once heard a woman say, well, George, I think it's just great that you can go out and earn the money so that we can have this steak on this table. What's wrong with us that we can't show this kind of appreciation? Marriage has to be worked at. It's not something that simply happens. You know the old story of the preacher who went out to visit the farmer and they stood looking over the farmer's beautifully plowed fields and the preacher said to the farmer, well, George, he said, you and God have done a great job on this farm. And the farmer said, yeah, but you should have seen it when God had it by himself. <laughs> and God is sovereign. God is our master. He is our creator. He is the giver of all good gifts. And yet there is a sense in which you and I have got to cooperate and we've got to work at obedience to the principles that he has set forth for us. The third thing that makes marriage work, and some of you are wondering if I was ever going to get around to this, is sex. You can relax. I'm not going to tell you how to do it, or how often, or what to wear, or not to wear. I don't want to hear about what you do, or how often you do it, or what you wear. I'm not going to tell you anything about mine. But there are a couple of things that I would like to say about it. One is that I think it's probably the greatest gift that God has given to us human beings for fun. And for some reason or other, I missed that altogether in everything that I ever heard about it before I got married. Nobody ever told me about the hilarity and the plain, old-fashioned fun that goes along with this side of marriage. But it happened that I married men who had tremendous senses of humor, and there would be no way for me to describe the fun that we had, and if there were a way, you can be sure I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Thank God for it. That's another thing. It's a gift. It's a great gift, and it's a gift which is meant for one area and one area only, and this is one of the things that makes me so sick about the promiscuity and the total lack of discipline or any teaching along these lines for, the, for young people because they're tearing up the greatest gift that God has ever given. They're punching it full of holes before they ever get to experience the real thing. It's like opening all the Christmas presents before Christmas. Or my husband said to him it was like taking a knife and just slashing through a great painting. It's the ruination of the greatest of earthly gifts. Like all others of God's gifts, it's to be used unselfishly. It's to be used not just for ourselves. But our first consideration is the other person. 
And any real woman knows that it is in the most complete giving of herself that she is most completely satisfied. There's that same old paradox again. There's no way in the world ever get away from that principle, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Sex is an image of death throughout myth and history and story and legend. The result of sex, pregnancy, is a kind of death for a woman, and certainly the giving of birth is a kind of death. My life for yours. And it's a wonderful thing to me to contemplate the fact that the only reason you and I are here is because of those deaths that worked in somebody else. It was the laying down of the life, it was the death of the seed, it was the giving of that woman in nine months of more or less discomfort, and then the going down to the very gates of death to give birth. My life for yours. The gift of sex is one which is given us to be used in a particular way for a particular person, and not just for ourselves. Always to be used according to God's laws, and I'm sure that in an audience like this I need not belabor this point. We know what God's laws are. I want to read a passage from my favorite author, Isaac Dinesen. I dare say if I were to ask for a show of hands as to how many have heard of her, there would not be too many. I think she's one of the greatest writers, perhaps the greatest writer of the 20th century in the English language. Oddly enough, she was Danish and wrote in English. But she's written some absolutely priceless, matchless books, one of whom is one of which is Out of Africa. If you're interested in reading Isaac Dennison, please start with Out of Africa. Then if you get hooked, you might go on to some of her stories. This is from a story called The Deluge at Norderney, in which she sets up the sort of situation that Isaac Dennison is a genius at setting up, where she has several people marooned in a flood on a, in a barn, and the water is gradually rising, and it's perfectly obvious that there's no way that they're going to be rescued the water is rising rapidly. There's a cardinal, an old single lady, and two young people, a young man and a young woman. And in the course of the night, which they know will be their last, they proceed to unmask themselves before each other, and ultimately the young man and woman get married. The cardinal marries them. And he says this, talking to the old lady after the boy and girl have retired to the hayloft. The cardinal says, we will consider the lesson which these lovers above and before all other things teach us about the tremendous courage of the creator of the world. Every human being has, I believe, at times given room to the idea of creating a world himself. The Pope, in a flattering way, encouraged these thoughts in me when I was a young man. I reflected then that I might, had I been given omnipotence and a free hand, have made a fine world. I might have bethought me of the trees and rivers, of the different keys in music, of friendship and innocence. But upon my word and honor, I should not have dared to arrange these matters of love and marriage as they are. And my world should have lost sadly thereby. What an overwhelming lesson to all artists. Do not be afraid of absurdity. 
Do not shrink from the fantastic. Within the dilemma, choose the most unheard of, the most dangerous solution. Be brave, be brave. Ah, madam, we have got much to learn. Upon this, he fell into deep thought. I was reminded when I read that story of C.S. Lewis's remark on the same subject. He said, sex is absurd and hilarious, and I've forgotten all the other adjectives he used. And he said, you wouldn't have thought of it. You and I wouldn't have thought of it. And it's a marvelous thing, and one for which we should thank God. Enjoy it. Be thankful for what you've got, if you've got it. And thank God for his gifts of all other kinds, if you haven't got that particular one. I know that my time is up, and I should stop immediately. The last thing, and by far the most important thing, that makes marriage work, and here I contradict what I said earlier, is love. Marriage makes love work, but then it's love that makes marriage work, but I'm not talking about the kind of love that's just bear hugs and goo-goo and the kind of feelings that you see all the posters about. Love, according to the Bible, is action. Christian love is an act, and you can find a description of it in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. This love, of which I speak, is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth pre prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when everything else has fallen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>